Awesome. It's good to be with you guys. How do you guys like the week? A little bit cooler weather, huh? Yeah, I've enjoyed it. It has been beautiful. So in case you're new, we are going through the Gospel of Luke. Um, we've been in there for... Uh, for part of the summer and, and most of the fall. And we are picking up now in Luke chapter 10. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up there. Um, but I want to give a little bit of context to where we are, because last week we went through Jairus and how Jesus came and healed Jairus' daughter. Um, and now we're going to kind of pick up a little bit further on in the story in Luke 10, and we're going to be in verses 25 through 37. Um, but to give you an idea of the Gospel of Luke, chapters 1 through 9 in the Gospel of Luke are really unpacking who Jesus is. So we see, you know, the birth narrative and early on in Luke, and then we see kind of introduction to his ministry, and then all of these things start happening. Jesus is able to do miracles. He's able to cast out demons. He's able to heal. He rebukes fevers. Um, and then he even can raise the dead. We see that by a touch, Jesus raises the dead, and then he has the audacity to forgive sins. And so there's this mounting question of who is who is Jesus? And so Luke is unpacking that Jesus is this unique son of man, son of God, come to redeem man, come to save sin. And then we see there's kind of a, a change, there's a shift that happens right around chapter 9 and onward all the way to 18. Uh, and, and you see Jesus does some miracles, but he's more teaching in stories and teaching in parables. And so what Jesus is doing here in Luke 9 through 18 is he's unpacking what does it mean to follow me? Because you can know who Jesus is, but not follow him. And so Jesus is unpacking, here's what it means to be my follower, to be a disciple. And in Luke 10 specifically, he has just sent out 70 disciples, right? Jesus has 12, and then he has the 70. And he sent out the 70 disciples. And they are going throughout the city. And he's given them power and authority to cast out demons, to perform miracles. And so they come back, and they're on cloud nine. They're like, this thing works. Like, we've got power. You know, we can cast out demons and they leave. And Jesus is kind of debriefing with them, kind of saying, that's great. Be excited that your names are written in heaven, not necessarily that you have power. Um, and so Jesus is debriefing with them, kind of talking about that what it means to follow him is it, it means to proclaim the gospel, right? That part of being a follower of Jesus it, is it means to verbally unpack the good news of Jesus, to everyone, to anyone, to everyone around you, that you're explaining to them that Christ's death on the cross is for your sin, that his resurrection from the dead was that you might be reconciled back to God and have new life, that being a follower of Christ is verbally sharing the gospel. That's, that's just part and parcel with it. But we also see another side of it, and that's kind of what we pick up with our passage today, is that being a follower of Christ also means that you are a gospel neighbor. It doesn't simply mean that you open your mouth and share the gospel, but it means that you live your life through the gospel and in the gospel's power. And so what it means to be a gospel neighbor is it means that, that the needs of those around you are your needs. And that you, you meet their needs with such force and such concrete detail and such energy and joyfulness as you would meet your own needs. And that you display the gospel through your actions, not simply with your mouth. And so this is what Jesus is unpacking as we come to a very familiar passage. Most of us have heard it's the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the struggle with this parable um, is that we come to it and oftentimes we think we know it and we have to unlearn what we thought we knew so we can hear it again afresh. And I tell you, this is something that as a pastor I always have to do because you come to a text and you're like, yeah, I know what this means. 
And then if you think you know what it means and you approach it with an arrogance and you approach it as if you already understand it, most likely you miss out on some of the areas that God would teach you best. And so my plead with you, my my prayer for you is that you would approach this very well-known parable with fresh eyes, with fresh ears, with an open and receptive heart that you might listen and hear what it is that God would speak to you, the call that he would lay upon our lives to follow him as our Lord and as our Savior. So... If you, uh, if you have your Bibles open, read with me, or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to start in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word. So the big idea, the thing that I think dominates this passage is that to follow Jesus means that you and I, if we follow him, we are to be a people that are marked, that are compelled, that are driven by mercy, by compassion. It means that we can't be people that see need and pass by on the other side. But in fact, the needs and the brokenness well up and cause us to move so there, I think there are four themes that we're going to look at, kind of our outline as we approach the text, um, is that we're going to look at the, the command of love. Jesus talks about it. There's, there's the command of love, the scope of what it means to be a neighbor. Jesus unpacks, what is it, who is my neighbor? What does it mean to be a neighbor? So there's the scope of what it means to be a neighbor. We're going to look at the inspiration of compassion. What is it that makes someone compassion? What drives our compassion? And then we'll close with some some practical observations of what does it mean for us to practice mercy? How do we actually live what this parable talks about out? So first, let's start by the, the command of love. I think it's really interesting when we look at uh, when we look at the context of this parable is that Jesus is in the middle of debriefing with his disciples, right? He's talking to them, and all of a sudden there's an interruption. A lawyer just kind of pops in and it's just like, hey, he stands up in the middle of Jesus' talks, right? I mean, like, 
Have you ever had that? You're in the middle of a really good conversation, and you're about to like make a great point, and somebody's like, yeah, hey, and they just like interrupt and cut you off. And it seems that Jesus' ministry is full of these things, right? He's like, I mean, one, because everything that Jesus says is gold, you know? And so anytime he's interrupted, it's like, dude, we don't want to listen. You know, Jesus is about to tell us something. Um, but also because everybody wants to hear Jesus. Everybody wants a piece of him. And so you see that this interruption happens, and really thankful that it does. Because the whole parable of the Good Samaritan wouldn't have been given to us except for an interruption. And so what we see here is we see that Jesus' reaction to interruptions, his reaction to distractions, to people pestering him, is he sees an opportunity rather than a problem. He sees that this is God's sovereign plan for him to unpack what the kingdom is like. How would it change your life? How would it change my life if we saw the distractions, if we saw the, the people that are interrupting us? as opportunities, God's sovereignly planned opportunities for us to unpack the good news of the kingdom, for us to display what God's reign is like. That's exactly what Jesus does, as he sees this as an opportunity, and he begins to unpack it. But the lawyer who's come in, and it's really interesting, because we hear lawyer, and, uh, and what it actually means is religious scholar, it's, uh, it's, so this person isn't just a, you know, a random lawyer, but he specializes in the first five books of the Bible and the Torah. And so he's coming to Jesus to put him to the test, right? Why, why is he putting Jesus to the test? Well, Jesus hung around with sinners, right? I mean, not too long ago, we see that Jesus is at parties, right? And so you have somebody that's a scholar in this and saying, you know, it seems like he's hanging around with people that disregard God's law. They don't really obey it. And so I bet he doesn't really take God's word very seriously. I bet he disregards it too. I bet he says, you know, it doesn't really matter what you do. Everybody's just kind of welcome. And so the lawyer asks this question to trap Jesus. But it's interesting because Jesus traps him. But it's a good thing to be trapped by Jesus, because he loves you. And his trap is intended to rescue and to reveal and to save. But you see, the, the lawyer comes and he asks probably one of the most pertinent questions someone can ask. How do I inherit eternal life? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Think about the questions that we ask on a daily basis and how trivial most of them are. Think about some of the questions that we spend most of our life asking ourselves. What college will I go to? Where will I work? Who will I marry? What will I eat? <laughs> Where will I sleep? Who are my friends? We ask ourselves and we spend so much of our life figuring out things that we think are important. How much more important is the matter of eternity? If this life is but a glimpse, if this 70 years is but a dot on the stretch of eternity, might we not ask that question and might it not be far more important than what we give it credit for? How is it that we gain eternal life? Think about this. I was just talking with my neighbor the other day, and, uh, and we were talking about that if people are the only thing that lasts forever, if everything else, if, if a job and if money and if a car and if sports teams and if all these things are just going to fade and people are the only thing that really lasts, how would it change the way that we would interact with others? How would we treat people if we knew that they were eternal beings? going on forever and he asks this question how is it that i inherit eternal life and jesus is the expert question asker right because he says well why don't you tell me scholar of the law and so jesus asks a question based on his question 
And so you see that the lawyer unpacks it and says, a pretty standard summary, right? This would have not been anything novel, but there are over 600 laws in the Old Testament. And so by Jesus' time, they would have said, this is this is a, a pretty nice, neat summary. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, very good, right? And he says, go and do that. And he says, but the lawyer wanted to justify himself. Why is it the lawyer wanted to justify himself? Maybe because he felt the full weight of what it actually means to love God, of what it actually means to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Archbishop Temple talks about that what you do in your solitude is your religion. So think about that. What is it that your mind goes to when you don't have any time? When, you, when you're sitting around and you're just waiting, you don't have anything to do, what does your mind go to? Is it God? Is it his attributes? Is it his grace and his mercy? Or is it a vacation? Is it a certain place or a certain person? Is it something that you wish you finally had to make you fully content? What it means to love God is it means to obey his commandments. Right? Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. How are we doing on that? I mean, just a simple look at the Ten Commandments shows that we don't obey God nearly as well as we think we do. Are we generous? Do we put God first? Are we committed to God? That, for me, is one of the most challenging things that I look at in a world full of opportunities, in a world of just numerous things that we can spend our time and our energies and our mind on, and just asking, are we actually committed to God? Do we, are we steadfast? Are we faithful? Do we put him first? Or do we put ourselves first and everything else first? And, and so the weight of that, the weight of what it means to put God first, not only that, but he says, then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? How is it that we love ourselves? Well, it seems that we feed ourselves every day. It seems that we're pretty preoccupied about what we'll wear. We're pretty concerned and self-consumed about what will make us happy. Sometimes that's very foolish things, and sometimes it's things that will actually hurt us, but we think that they'll make us happy. And so we're concerned about our own happiness. We're concerned about our own well-being. We're concerned about what is going to satisfy and consume us and please us. When's the last time you thought about your neighbor like that? The last time that you thought about what would make them happy? What would satisfy them? What would help them? When you have a need, don't you muster all of your energy, your resources to meet that need? To get it done, especially if it's really burdensome to you? When's the last time that we felt that same urgency, that same obligation for those needs of our neighbors? And so you feel the weight We feel the weight of our inability. We feel the weight of our sin, of the moments and times where we don't love our neighbor as ourself, in which we don't love God as we ought to. And the lawyer likely says, well, hold on a second. (laughs) He wants to justify himself. And don't we do the same thing? right? When, When somebody actually holds us accountable, when someone comes forth and says, hey, but what about this? This is what God desires for you don't we automatically start kind of backpedaling and say, well, you don't understand my situation. You don't really know what I'm going through right now. You know, I've got this and I've got that. And did God really mean this by that? You know, I think there's some wiggle room right there for me to get out of it. And that's kind of what the lawyer is doing. If he's unpacking, well, what is it that you mean by neighbor? You know, like, because what the Jews understood is that their neighbor was a fellow Jew. Right? And the Pharisees said, hey, my neighbor isn't even other Jews, but my neighbor is other Pharisees. 
And the same with the Essenes, is that they were another community. They said, you know, my neighbor is just other Essenes. And so they secluded and narrowed the term of neighbor so that it only included those that they were like. And he desires to justify himself and unpack and say, hey, who is really, who really is my neighbor? And why is he doing that? It's because he wants to know the baseline minimum. What is it that I can do and get away and, and meet the commandment and then kind of check it off my list? And in other words, who do I not have to love? <laughs> Tell me, if you can just name the group of people or, or select the individuals that I don't have to love, that would be awesome because then I could start getting to checking off those boxes. And it's really interesting how Jesus approaches that because he, he asks him a question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, you know, that reminds me of a story. He <laughs> doesn't really answer his question. <laughs> he just says, come with me as I tell you an interesting story about that question that you have. And so that's where we, we go and we, we learn about the, the scope of our neighbors. Who is our neighbor? I think that there are three things that we should see here. As we see who our neighbor is, we see when we're called to be a neighbor, and we see how much we're called to give. So who is our neighbor? Most of the time, we think of someone as our neighbor, or we want to be generous, we want to be sacrificial to someone that's like us, right? That has the same religious convictions, that has the same political outlook, that has the same race or status of life, that those are the people that we're willing to be generous to. Those are the people that we're willing to sacrifice for. But you see, this text teaches that your neighbor is anyone in need. That your neighbor is actually sometimes those that are most different and most antagonistic towards you. Someone that perhaps is a Muslim. Someone that's a Buddhist. Someone that's of a different religious faith and conviction. Someone that shares a total opposite political outlook than you. Someone that is of different race and different culture. Don't, uh, don't, don't dare try to dismiss the radical nature of what this is. Do you see that Samaritans and Jews, sometimes we tame this down. Samaritans and Jews were hated enemies. And it's not like, I just don't like you. I don't want to see you at a party. It's more like, if Rome wasn't here, I would kill you. The Samaritans and Jews were at war with one another. Earlier on, the Samaritans brought dead humans and they dumped them in the temple to defile the Jews' temple. The Jews likewise waged war against Samaritan and, helped and started to destroy their temple. This was all-out war. They didn't walk through one another's, one another's regions, right? I mean, if a Jew were to tell this story different than Jesus, they would have said, yeah, and you see a Samaritan walk by, and you kick some dirt on him, and you keep walking by, and the other Jews would have applauded. I mean, it, it's whatever bias you can think of, whatever, you know, whether you're thinking of illegal immigrant or Syrian refugee or whatever it is that you have a prejudice against, it is far worse than that because of the proximity. And so Jesus telling this story is meant to offend. It's meant to draw out the racism and the prejudice that's inherent in the people listening, in the hearers. And so too, we're to feel that. We're to feel that we are to be neighbors to those that are radically different than us. And we aren't to seclude ourselves with those that are very similar and those that don't challenge us and those that are like us. Our neighbors are very different. When? When are we to be neighborly? Well, we like to be neighborly when it's just, you know, like a natural disaster. Or something happened, it was out of their control, Samarit- you know, Samaritan Strip. A tornado came through or a flood or something like that happened. It was totally out of their control. And so we're going to step in and we're going to help. 
But what about people that it's totally their fault? How do we respond and how do we help people when they got themselves in this mess? And you see, to the Samaritan, he would have viewed the Jew and he would have said, or the, the man on the road, if he was a Jew, and would have likely said, he deserved to be there. It's their fault. They didn't see people as individual. They saw them more as collective. And the Jews had, had trampled and had hated Samaritans. And so the Samaritan would have had every right and every belief system to say, eh, good riddance, your group, you're getting what you finally deserve. You had it coming a long time ago. But instead of, instead of just going along with that prejudice, he instead goes and helps someone out, even when he thinks it might have been their fault, even when they, they might have had it coming. And isn't this exactly what Christ did to us? She didn't say, well, finally, now they're deserving of mercy. <laughs> they did something that wasn't their fault, so I guess now I'll step in and give them grace. I think we're all pretty thankful that God didn't do that. Instead, God looked in the midst of our undeservedness, in the midst of the, <laughs> the, the heap of trash and pile <laughs> that we put ourselves in, and he said, I'm going to reach in in the midst of that because of their fault, and I'm going to, I'm going to put myself in there and help them. And so it's not just when people haven't done anything. It's even when people have, have brought it upon themselves are we called to step in and we're called to show mercy and called to help. How much? Right? Only when we afford it? Well, I'll help and I'll sacrifice only when I have the means to kind of do that. You know, and right now it's a little tight. I'm not really sure about it. Look at what the Samaritan did. We don't really understand the full... Uh, impact of what it was why is it that the priest and the levite didn't why is it that they walked by right why is it they ignored the man that is beaten and broken on the side of the road well part of the reason is one a priest and a levite they had to be pure right they had to be ceremonially clean and so they weren't sure if this man was dead or was dying and so they're kind of like well i'd rather not rather not get my hands dirty on that and become unclean and so they passed by on their side but a more likely reason is because this way that they were traveling this road, it's, it was 17 to 20 miles long. And it was from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it descended almost 3,500 miles, right? So it's a very steep decline as it's coming along. Think of over in Afghanistan, as I'm sure you heard, when terrorists would hide out. They couldn't, they couldn't get to them, even with our special forces. You couldn't really get in there because there's so many caves, there's so many hideouts, it's hard to navigate in there. This is exactly what it's like is that this place was known for robbers. It was known for thieves and for those that would stop and murder people for their possessions. And so immediately when Jesus starts telling this story, people are like, yeah, bad place. South side, ghetto, place where you're going to get shot. Don't go there. And so they knew that this is not a good place. And so as the priest and Levi are walking by, they see this man half dead. They're thinking, yeah, robber's still around. Dude's not dead yet. And so they're thinking, well, if I stop and help, I risk also being killed. I risk my own life. I risk this guy playing a trick because that's not unknown. Somebody to act like they're hurt and all of a sudden jump up and beat them and take their money. And so the, the, the Levite and the priest are still self-consumed. They're thinking about their own safety. They're thinking about their own security. They're thinking about their own life. That They pass by the person that is broken, that is robbed, that's stripped and half dead. I hope you feel a little bit more sympathy for the priest and the Levite than before. Because oftentimes we pass by far less circumstances. Somebody hurt on the side of a road and we're too busy to go to work. And so the Samaritan stops by. 
at risk of his life, thinking that robbers still might be around. And he owes this man nothing. But he takes him. He probably rips off his part of his own clothing and wraps his wounds. He takes oil, he takes wine, and he washes his wounds and bandages them up. Then he takes the man. And instead of kind of saying, hey, you're going to walk along my donkey, he puts him on his own ride as this man walks all the way, probably many, many miles, as he carries this half-dead man back to an inn. He carries him to the inn. He sets him in there. And apparently this guy at the inn knew who he was. It, it, the Samaritan had gone through this path before, had done business there. And he says, listen, take care of him. And anything that he needs, put on me. And he gives him money. You see, this is what we call holistic ministry. <laughs> he didn't just do a part of it. But instead, he opened up his heart so that his finances, his physical safety, right, his, his emotional security, he, he put all of himself out there for the good of this man at, at the cost of himself. And so what this means is it means that we sacrifice, that we give, that the burdens of others fall unto us, that we are to carry each other's burdens one to another. It's not just in a time where, well, I'm, never, I'm not going to really feel any burden by helping this person out, so I guess I'll take it on. And that's often what we do, is we say, well, their need really isn't burdensome to me, and so I guess I can take that on. But that's not what the scriptures calls to, and that's not what this illustrates. As it says that when God puts that in, when God calls us to a need, that it is going to be burdensome. It is going to take on and, and cost us. But that's what God calls us to do. So what about the inspiration? How is it that we do this? All right, how is it that we practically show mercy and show compassion? We see that there's two motivations, right? There's two motivations kind of in the text for how we go about this. The, the priest and the Levite, they were by profession people that helped the poor, right? So this is kind of their duty. That's what they did full time is that they're going and they're helping the poor. They're kind of ministering to them. But we see that, that they're doing it out of duty. They're doing it out of obligation. They're doing it to meet a checklist to see that and feel that they are good, that they're accomplished, that they're worthy in God's sight. Then you see the Samaritan, and it says that he saw him and he had compassion, that mercy filled up his heart and his soul. And you see, it's such a radical difference in your motivation because obligation and mere duty isn't going to see you through. And, and just as them, when push comes to shove, when you're simply doing things out of obligation, it's not at the core of who you are, it doesn't overflow then it's not going to happen. Then you're going to say, that's too costly because you're thinking simply about yourself and about what I must do rather than the other person. But the Samaritan, mercy had flowed into the core of who he was, the core of who he is. And so too, this is, I mean, this is the whole point of, of the parable is that when you have been showed mercy, you will show mercy. And we know that Jesus, Jesus isn't talking about himself here, right? This isn't in disguise showing him Jesus, but you can't not see Jesus in this. When you understand that he's on the way to the cross, you can't not help but see that Jesus is the Samaritan, that at great cost to himself, put himself in physical risk, not only in risk, but, but died. Separation from the father, financially leaving the riches of heaven and becoming poor. 
for those of us who were not simply stranded but dead, who had been held captive by Satan and by sin. And when, when you understand the bondage that you were in, the sin that you were in, and the extent to which Jesus went to rescue you, the extent to which his Samaritan came and, and, and took on your burden, when that mercy penetrates your soul, only then will you show the kind of mercy that this parable talks about. Only then will it overflow and it will come naturally. It will come as part of who you are. John Piper says that the key to becoming a merciful person is to become a broken person. You get the power to show mercy from the real feeling in your heart that you owe everything you are and have sheer divine mercy. Therefore, if we want to become merciful people, it is imperative that we cultivate a view of God in ourselves that helps us to say with all our heart that every joy and virtue and distress of our lives is owing to the free and undeserved mercy of God. Only when you see that everything that you have, everything that you are, everything that's given to your life is simply because of God's mercy will it penetrate to your soul and will it overflow into your life and through your life into others. And will you be able to show mercy? The last thing is the practice of mercy. We've seen the motivation of mercy is, is that one of love, one of free grace. How do we practically live this out, though? Well, both parties saw the need, right? The Levi and the priest, they saw the man that was broken, but they walked by, they hardened their heart. The difference is that the Samaritan, when he saw their need, he thought about it. He didn't just pass by and just say, well, I got other things to do with my day, I'm going to move on. Instead, it stuck in his mind. And not only did he think about it, but then he began to feel it. He began to feel the pain and feel the brokenness. He began to have empathy and compassion welled up in his, in his heart. And that compassion wasn't just a good feeling. It wasn't like he saw a clip and said, man, I really should do something about that. And then he just kind of moved on. The compassion moved him to action. It led him to do something. First John three eighteen through 19, it says, Little children, let us love not in word and speech, but in action and truth. And by this we will know that we belong to the truth and will assure our hearts in his presence. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the last days. He's talking about his kingdom coming, and, uh, and he's gathered all the people. And he says that he's sorting through the sheep and the goats. Both are white, so you have to separate them because sometimes they'll just wander together, apparently. And so he starts to sep- separate the, the sheep and the goats. And how is it that he can tell who are the sheep and who are the goats? Well, he, says to the, he says to the sheep, you... When I was tired, when I was poor, when I was in prison, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, you came. You visited me in prison. You gave me water when I was thirsty, and you fed me when I was hungry. You clothed me when I was naked. And they turn to him, and they say, where were you? When did we do these things for you? And he says, when you did these to the least of these, you did this to me. And he turns to those that are separated from him, that are in eternal judgment, apart from him. And he says, when I was poor, when I was desolate and naked, you didn't feed me, you didn't clothe me, you didn't give me anything to drink or anything to eat. And they say, well, when did we not do these things for you? And he says, when you didn't do these for the least of these, you didn't do this to me. The way that we know and we practice mercy, 
The way that we know that we're God's children is, is through living out mercy. We, we can deceive ourselves so easily. A good tree bears good fruit, and so our lives will bear mercy if we have been shown mercy. Our lives will bear compassion. You know the word that is most used to describe Jesus' inner emotional life is compassion? Jesus is constantly moved and guided by compassion. It dictates his life, overflows in and through him. And so, too, we're called to we're called to not simply just see people's needs, but we're called to think about them. We're called to internalize them. And we're called to act on them. We're called to be moved by them. It's a little overwhelming, though, isn't it? When you think about all the needs out there. Sometimes I think about all the needs that I see, and I'm like, man, I can't, man, I can't do everything. And so one of the things that helps me to be guided by this is, one, to know that not every need is a calling. It is that there are tons of needs that are out there, but it doesn't mean that God is calling us to them. But God placed this man right in his path. And so who is in your physical vicinity? And this is, this is for me where it's get, gotten very, very practical, and this is changing my life even as I speak. Um, as we moved in, Emily and I moved into a neighborhood, and God has placed me in that neighborhood. God has placed you in a physical location. right? And it's, hear this, your neighbor aren't just your physical neighbors. It's more, but it's certainly not less. All right, It is more than just who are physically around you, but it's not less than that. And so one of the concrete ways that I, that the Lord has led me and spoken to me is that, that I can be a neighbor is, why don't you start with those around you? And this is, I mean, this is extremely biblical. When you look in Acts 17, this is what Paul says. It says in Acts 17, verse 26 through 28, it says, And he made from one man and every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not, yet he is actually not far from each of us for in him we live and move and have our being. So what this means for me is that it means God has called me to a block. God has called me to a place and he says, I want you to start once again, it's more, not less. I want you to start, and I want you to demonstrate my mercy and my compassion here. You are my representative. You are the person I have called to change this neighborhood. And I want you just, just to, like I thought about this this morning, and it just got me so excited. It just lit me up. I want you to imagine what happened if each of us did that. I want you to think right now, what if you went home and you said, you know, God has appointed, God has sovereignly dictated and put me here where I live right now. And God has sovereignly placed all of my neighbors around me that I might share the gospel with them. That I might be the person that knows them, that loves them, that is there to, not necessarily me personally physical, but help them to get needs met, to demonstrate and and that they see the gospel in and through my lives. What would happen in our church, what would happen in this culture if that happened? If each one of us had that conviction and we didn't just go, we didn't just deceive ourselves and say, we listened to another sermon. Yeah, that was really nice. But what if we said, no, I'm going to take ownership and this is my block. This is my people. God has called me and I'm not going to delegate that to somebody else, but instead I'm going to take ownership and say, I'm going to pray for this people. I'm going to be broken for my neighborhood. I'm going to sacrifice and give of myself that these people might come to know Christ. 
And that would change, that would begin to change our city. That would begin to change your neighborhood. Man, we can do that. God wants us to do that. See the vision that he's placed before us and what he's calling us to. We can do it. Man, Jesus did so much for us. Jesus gave us all of himself. How can we not give ourselves for our neighbors? How can we not empty ourselves of fear of man and go and be bold and learn and know people? And so that's, I, I got this. There's a really good book that I was reading. It's called The Art of Neighboring. And I hope that if you have it, please grab it right now. Go ahead. Um, you should have gotten it in your lifeline or fold it up. Um, this is just a, a start. But one of the things Em and I are doing is, I mean, we're trying to have block parties. We're trying to just to, to facilitate getting to know our neighbors. Because, listen, you can't, you can't love somebody unless you know them. Right? You have to, lo- you have to know somebody before you can actually love them. And so do you know your neighbors? Do you know who they are? And so this is just a tool that I would, it's very practical. Please, to be a doer of God's word and not deceive yourselves. This is a simple way of doing this, is taking this and saying, who are my neighbors, right? And so it has a little block and it has all, you know, your house probably isn't like this. Some of you are, some of you aren't, but it has your neighbors around them, you know? And so really what it is, it's who are the, the nearest eight neighbors to you? Who are the closest eight neighbors to them? And what it says, it says, do you know them, right? You, you have a list and it says, I want you to fill this out when you go down. But it, the first one is, it, do you know the names of them? Do you know their names? The second part is, do you know any kind of relevant age? How, how old are they? You know, what do they enjoy for food? I mean, just trivial things, but do you know any information about them? And the last one is, how many of them do you actually know real life information? You know their story, you know their motivation, you know their dreams, you know their fears, you know their spiritual story, what drives them? What would God do if you knew your neighbors like this? How might God empower you and equip you to meet some of their needs, the brokenness? Because think about this, the Samaritan was willing to go this far for someone that was half-dead physically. How much further should we go for those that are fully dead spiritually? For those that are completely dead in their sin and don't know Christ? How much more should we give of ourselves? Should we sacrifice? How, how much further should we go and be willing to put ourselves in risk? And so this is just a, just a really practical example that I'm, I'm seeking to do. And, and honestly, us as a staff, we're seeking to do it. The Lord really convicted me and and we're just seeking to do once a month is we're just going around the, our local businesses and we're bringing them breakfast and just saying, hey, listen, we love you. We'd love to feed you and love to pray for you. You know, like, what's your story? Let, just want to get to know you. Because we've been here 10 years and we don't know our neighbors near as well as we should. And we need to because God has put our church right here that we might know and love our neighbors. And God has placed you there too that you might know and love your neighbors. I want to close just with a, a quote by Piper. It says, an eye for distress, a heart of pity, an effort to help in spite of enmity, that's mercy. I'll say it again. An eye for distress, a heart of pity, an effort to help in spite of enmity, that's mercy. And that's the mercy that God has shown to us. Let us pray.